to save sinners. Jesus healed many people while he was here on earth, but that wasn't his purpose. Jesus performed miracle after miracle while he was here on earth, but that wasn't his purpose. Jesus controlled the weather by his spoken word, but that was not his purpose. Jesus comforted the weak and the hurting while he was here on earth, but that was not his purpose. And Jesus gave us a picture of great morality while he was here on earth, but that was not his purpose. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that by saving them, they would turn their eyes and hearts toward him and glorify him in all things. And so I hope today that we'll spend our time unpacking that to see what that looks like and how that fact, the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, impacts everything else in our lives. So let's pray. God, I am amused by your humor that you would use a wretch like me. And it affirms what the Scriptures say that you will use the foolish in this world, Lord. Because my vocabulary consists of about a hundred words and I don't use them that well. But God, you are greater than our English vocabulary. You are greater than any of our abilities. And so, Lord, I pray that through the Scriptures, as Garrett just sung about, through the Scriptures, you would enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts so that we could understand the truth that you came into the world to save sinners and that by doing that, we glorify you and exalt you and lift your name above all names. And I pray, Lord, that, um, that you could use this foolishness of me in whatever is untrue or not biblical. Would you just cause it, as Brad says often, to fall to the ground? But you use your word to save people today. And for those who know you, use your word to breathe a fresh wind into our hearts as only you can do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, from what I understand, I didn't know this to be fact, but there is a preacher. He was in London in the 1800s. You hear Brad referencing him a lot, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he was perhaps one of the greatest preachers of all times, but definitely in his day, he was notorious, notorious for preaching sermons on one verse. And so when Brad sent out a message this week to say, hey, Brennell is going to be preaching on second uh, on first Timothy two five. Apparently, Roberto, the reformer named Ward, shot an email back, not to me, but to Brad to say, who does Counts think he is? Spurgeon? Well, the fact of the matter is we're going to preach on first Timothy two five plus a little bit of six. OK, so we're not going one verse, but um, uh, this is far from Spurgeon. Um, I pray always when I, when I know that Brad and I will talk and say, hey, can you preach on this date perhaps? My immediate thought is, uh, what am I going to do? What, what, what is my con- I don't have content. I, I can't because we always think as public speaking we need to add to it. And so, but over time, things start coming together. So I was, this week I was in our bedroom just kind of looking over notes. And Bennett, my youngest, said, hey, Dad, can I look at these notes? And he started turning the pages and turning the pages. And he said, Dad, you've only got about 45 minutes. 
And um, you think you can get this in? And um, we'll see what we can do. Basically, uh, there were seven pages and about ten minutes per page, so buckle up. Let's get ready. Jeff Travis and, and Cole's in the back. If he starts giving it this, we're out of here, okay? So, so let's get to work. Here, here's what I want to do. I want to unpack those truths. I want to unpack the truth of 1 Timothy 2.5, but it's going to take us a minute to get there because I, what I want us to look at first is our worldview and kind of get a picture of our worldview to understand that, that our worldview or, or, or our framework or perspective or what I like to call the lens with which I look at the world, it affects everything. And there's so many things in our world today that, that impact our worldview. And so I want to kind of unpack that first before we get to the Scriptures because it helps us to understand, wow, I didn't realize how much the world and how much so many other things were impacting the way I see everything. And if the gospel... If what we've talked about a little bit earlier through songs is not what is impacting our worldview, then we will get off. We will start going on a tangent that is away from, away from the gospel. And so I want to bring us awareness to our worldview. Some of the things that shape our worldview definitely are our experiences in our environment. And it's different for all of us. Some of you... Some of you, it's like it can, be, it can be influenced by what type of school you went to. Some of you went private school. Some of you went public school. Some of you went uh, uh, South Georgia school. Some of you might have gone big city school. Uh, where you shop influences, kind of shapes your worldview. Some of you um, are, are definite kind of Walmart tracking people. And some of you have never stepped in Walmart. And you, you may be more Neiman Marcus type people. This isn't good or bad. I'm just trying to bring awareness that, that our environment and our experiences shape our worldview. Some of you have always worn new clothes and some of you could tell stories of growing up. I never had any new clothes. That shapes your worldview and how you see this world and the judgments you make on this world. Another thing that shapes and impacts our worldview is history. American history impacts our worldview. We can look at back in American history. Southern history shapes our worldview. We had dinner last night with some folks who were from Minnesota. They see things differently just through the things that they eat than we do in the South. That's not good or bad, but what I'm saying, it shapes the way they see things. So I want to bring awareness to how, how significant it is where we perhaps were raised. Perhaps where we were raised impacts our... I mean, you're not going to believe this. There are places in the United States of America that do not have a Chick-fil-A. You and I, or I would think, that is crazy. And they think that that's normal. But we in Columbus, Georgia, and in the south, the, the, in Atlanta, Georgia, where, where the, the home of Chick-fil-A, we think, seriously? I mean, you can live a normal life without a Chick-fil-A? And, and so that's just kind of our mindset oftentimes, is we come from different lenses. So some of you who are not from the South, you are kind of looking at me and say, we are fine without But you're not fine without it, okay? I'm going to tell you that. When we moved to Columbus, okay, I'm going to go gentle with this. When we moved to Columbus, Danielle and I are not Columbus natives. When we moved to Columbus, apparently there's a bank in town that's kind of a hometown bank. True? And... I mean, I didn't know of the bank because I wasn't from Columbus. And so the folks who were from Columbus naturally thought, well, is there another bank? I didn't know. And I happened to bank with another bank. And I didn't, I wasn't like, I was okay with that. And so, but the people from Columbus thought, seriously, how could you ever bank? Because that was your worldview. You've grown up in it. You've seen that I'm from Columbus, Georgia. I'm like, that's the bank. Um, 
I still don't bank with them, but the church banks with, but the church banks with them, okay? Okay, we're good. So you can see how American history, our kind of our southern history, our, our Columbus history, it shapes and molds our worldview. It really does, and we really don't know the impact of it. People sh- definitely shape our worldview, our family. I mean, we're going to find this out this week. You get together your family, and you separate yourself from that family, but we're coming at the moment where we gather in happiness and joy and thanksgiving, and you kind of come into the family for the first 30 minutes good and well, and this is nice, until you start looking at them and say, they're still not normal. (laughs) Because we have kind of gotten outside of that, but we'll kind of revert. You ever notice I'm a 43-year-old man. I'm a man. I'm 43 years old. (laughs) I'm a four. That was an insider joke for a minute, but... but, um, I'm a 43-year-old man who will get together with my family this week on Thanksgiving, okay, and I will kind of revert back to kind of my, my boyhood, childhood. We just do that when we get with family. And so we're going to get with family that's not normal. I mean, not my family. My family's normal. Your family, okay? In case my mom watches this or hears this this afternoon. We shape our world. It's shaped by our family. It's shaped by our friends. It's shaped by our culture and our co-workers. It's shaped by, by our experiences. It's shaped by history. And it's shaped by the people that are not around us. It's shaped by the media and the Internet. And it's shaped by um, Hollywood. It really is. And this isn't a preaching against any of that. But we just have to be aware. Why do I have, because we all do have a worldview, why do I have the worldview that I have? And these things shape it. And the things that we take in shape us. If we take in Coke and Doritos, Coke and Doritos, Coke and Doritos, Chick-fil-A, Coke and Doritos, Coke and Doritos, Coke and Doritos, versus fruits and vegetables, what will ultimately shape us? What we take in shapes us. Again, I'm not preaching against any of that, just bringing awareness to why do we think the way we think, why do we have the worldview that we have. And if we're not seeing life through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will be shaped by other things. And it is shaped by other things. And that's how we establish in our life what normal is. We do, by our experiences and the worldview that we've come to established. So today I want to bring awareness to that. And then one of my goals is, is if you're a believer and your worldview is the gospel, we even as believers have a tendency for our lens to get very cloudy because we spend so much time in our culture and with our family and with other things that we talked about and with the external forces of media, internet. And so even as believers, our lens get cloudy. So I hope today that we can clean the lens of our worldview so that we, we're reminded of the gospel, reminded of our, our salvation, reminded of the person and work of Jesus and what that did for us. And if you're an unbeliever, here's what I pray that would happen, that you might, you might see a different worldview, understanding that there is a different worldview. Now listen, I am not so naive to think that some guy coming up here preaching one message is going to, after 30 years of history or 40 years or 50 years of history, is going to change your worldview. But it happened to Paul. And so God works like that through His Word. He can change a worldview in a moment. In the book of Acts, He struck Paul down and bam! He saw everything differently. So the way He saw family, the way He saw marriage, the way He saw money, the way He saw sex, the way He saw 
saw neighborhood, the way he saw everything change, and it will do the same for us. And that's why, as Brad just mentioned, we need to hear this over and over and over again because the gospel, as believers, we need the gospel to shape our worldview again and again and again. Here's why Christianity is so different, uh, difficult. It's because our worldview so often is self-sufficiency, is it not? That is kind of the fountain that we drink out drink out of since the Industrial Revolution, since technology, since transportation, since computers, since everything happening fast. We, we drink out of the fountain of you can do it. You can do it. You can do what you want to do. I have a phone now, and I am low-tech, very low-tech. I have a phone now that will actually take video. I took video at this marathon last Saturday, okay, of this lady finishing. By Wednesday of this week, that video that was on the, the droid, okay, it was on the droid. iPhone would do the same thing. Whichever camp you're in, doesn't matter. It'll do the same thing. It was worldwide. It had gone over Armed Forces Network. A little video that Bennett or Bailey probably had to te- have to teach me how to get the camera up on that thing within days had gone around the world because of technology and where we are. And so that just feeds into our, our worldview or our lens of self-sufficiency that what can't you do? What can't you do? I mean, you have a droid. Do you need the gospel? And we laugh and get, nah, that, that's silly. But that is truth. We think like that, whether we admit it or not, because we are probably, watch TV, you can do it. You can do it. Everything you want, you want to be what you want to be, just do it. Set your mind to it. That's the fountain we drink of. It's self-sufficiency. And it's exactly what the Bible, what the gospel teaches against. Teaches against. So, with that being said, we're going to look in the book of Timothy. We're going to to unpack one verse. It's going to take us a minute or two to get there. But this truth is the gospel. It's another one of those verses that the gospel is held all together in this one verse. So Paul is writing. You can turn to Timothy. Timothy's a small little letter. If you're searching in, I didn't even check what page it's on in the the, uh, seat Bibles. But if you're looking in the New Testament, go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, and Timothy. You'll just miss it um, if you're just fanning through. So find Timothy. And Timothy was a guy that Paul, on his uh, second missionary journey, I believe, was going through Lystra and Derby, And he's passing through, and he sees this young guy, probably, I, I don't know how old, but very young guy. Refers to him as, he refers to him as a child in the face, or probably younger than Paul. But he meets this guy in Lystra and Derby, who was probably just on fire for Christ. He probably came to Christ through his mother, who was Jewish, and father, who was Greek, who had come to know the Lord, probably... Well, definitely somehow through Paul's first ministry or missionary journey. And so Timothy is now a disciple of Christ and is just on fire probably. And I think about some of the young young 20-somethings in this church who were on fire for Jesus with a lot of energy. And I think about that and that's who I kind of picture Timothy being like. But, but I can just see Timothy on fire and Paul says, man, I like your spunk. You're rough around the edges, I would imagine, and you don't have it all right by any stretch. But listen, I need you. I need you because we have got a long road trip and I need people like you who are on fire for the gospel, on fire for Jesus Christ to come with me. And so that's what happens. 
So Paul sets out on his, on his journey and spends years and years on these missionary journeys going town to town telling about the gospel, telling about the gospel. And Timothy, learning all the way, learning all the way, taking notes, finding out more and more and more. And so he is mold, Paul is molding and shaping Timothy into being a great disciple and great follower of Jesus Christ. And I'll say this to you, men, women, do you, and we talk about this often, do you have a Timothy in your life, 40-year-old? Do you have a 30-year-old? Do you have a 20-year-old that you're shaping and molding? You don't have all the answers, but are you, you taking the experiences of your life and are you shaping and molding younger people? You need to do that. You need to be intentional about finding younger people. Younger people, you need to be intentional in your life about finding a Paul who can shape and mold you and invest into your life. We need that, and that is what we, that is what we want the ethos of Crosspoint to be, that we invest one generation, as Brad read earlier, will invest into the other. And so that's what we want to be. And that's what Paul did to Timothy. He saw, Timothy, I love your spunk. Let's go. Let's get going. And so when they get to Ephesus, Paul tells Timothy, and this was probably not a week or two later. This was probably years later. So Timothy has matured in his faith. And they get to Ephesus, and he tells Timothy, listen, you stay here. I'm going on. Because we need good men. We need good, solid men to stay in these towns and to make sure... These folks, that this church stays on track with the gospel. So that's what happened. Paul told him in the beginning of, uh, or he references that in the beginning of this letter. He says, listen, P- Timothy, you stay here and I'm going to go on. I'm heading to Macedonia. Uh, I thought it was necessary that I leave you here. And this is what he told these folks, he, uh, what he told Timothy. He said, listen, Timothy, I want you to make sure one thing. I want you to make sure that these folks at Ephesus, that they don't fall into any myths, or any genealogy, so that they just start to make speculations about Christ and the gospel. That was kind of his command at the beginning of that letter. He said, listen, Timothy, be on guard for this. Be on guard. Watch out. Miss genealogy so that it goes to speculation. He didn't say this. He didn't write this to Timothy in his letter because, he, because Paul was on a church-planting mission. That's why he's going town to town to town, plant churches, plant Christian churches. He didn't write back to, to uh, Timothy and say, hey, hey, listen, um, if you want a great youth program, Timothy, at the churches at Ephesus, here's what you do. Here's what, he didn't say that, or he didn't say, hey, if you want a good college ministry, Timothy, because you are in the church planning business, Timothy. I left you there at Ephesus. You want a good college ministry? Here's what you need to do, Timothy. He didn't say, um, uh, if you want a great worship team, here's what you do. You get a couple of guys and some female vocals, you put it together, it'll come together, and man, it'll just blow the church up. It'll be good. People will love to come. They love the music. He didn't say that. He didn't say, oh, Timothy, you want to grow this church at Ephesus? I mean, you want to bring people in? You want to grow it? Make it big so we can order more chairs and we can squeeze this place out and we'll deal with parking. He didn't say that. He wasn't saying any of that. He said, Timothy, stay true to the gospel. Stay true to the gospel because by not doing so, some of the folks have shipwrecked their faith. Primarily, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He calls them out. And so that's the beginning of the letter of Timothy. Telling, uh, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, telling him these things. Say, Listen, let's guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. I've trained you. Come on, I've trained you. And by the way, he says this is going to be work. It's going to take work. It's not going to be easy. But buckle up. And then Paul, then Paul goes into this, this unbelievable, and this is not what I'm preaching on, but just read Timothy. But he goes into the... To the, uh, to the reminder of who and how great God is when he said, listen, Timothy, he reminds them, man, I was a wreck. I was persecuting the church. 
I received undeserved grace and mercy from my Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, he refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. He said, so this Christ we worship, it is well worth it. He saved me from persecuting the church to growing the church. And that is what Timothy heard in his letter. And that's what Paul was saying to him. He said, come on. Come on, let's make sure the gospel stays the main thing. And he would write to this church today. He would say, cross point. There's many programs that are easy to fall into. There are many things that we could fall into that are all good. But when you start, when you start bending from the gospel just one degree, it doesn't look so bad. As a matter of fact, you might not even be able to notice, but years and years and degree and degree and degree away from the gospel, if the gospel is not the main thing, then years later you look back and say, and it happens in churches everywhere. It, it, it could be happening right here, and that's why we need to guard this church. You look back and go, how did we get here? How did this happen? Hence the reason Paul tells Timothy, guard this thing. Guard the gospel. And then we start in chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading there. He says, first of all, then, and he's talking about the church and how you do this in Ephesus. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In other words, he's saying, get, get together and pray. Why do we get together on Tuesday morning, men, to pray? Because Paul told Timothy, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for all people. Cross point, we need to be a church that gets together and prays. Men, if you can come on Tuesday morning, I know it's early, 6 to 7 a.m., come pray. Because what we're doing is we're giving intercession and supplication for all people, for our country, for our world, for this church, for this body. We need to be a body that prays. We do. It says, uh, uh, Thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to to the knowledge and truth. In other words, he's saying, listen, it's not how this started out, Jews. This isn't, this isn't what you thought. This is not for Jews. This is for Jews and Gentiles alike. It's for every tribe and every tongue. The gospel is for everyone. For everyone who would repent and believe. And that's what Paul said. Hey, listen, one of the teachings that comes in, in a lot of the early churches said, well, this must just be for the Jews. We're no, it's for all people. That was taken care of at the Jerusalem Council. Say, wait, we don't need circumcision. You don't have to do this. You don't have... This is for all people who hear the gospel and receive it. And that's what he's reminding Timothy. And here we get to the verse and a half. <laughs> for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We're going to chew on this verse for a little bit today. There is one God. I love that. I absolutely love that. Because if the God that we worship needs help or needs a board of directors of gods or needs a cabinet, if he needs a a God of agriculture or an angel of agriculture and an angel of humanity um, or if he needs an angel 
uh, secretary of defense type of angel if he needs that. I'm not impressed with that God. (laughs) I'm impressed with the God who holds everything together by the word of his power, who created all things and holds all things together and seeks glory in all things. So there is one God is what he tells Timothy. Listen to these verses and think about just that phrase, that there is one God and how great He is. And think about, is this what you think about when you think about God? We all think about something. I'm not telling you what the right thing to think about is when you think about God. But what we do think about could be the most important thing about us. Psalm 33, 6 and 7. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. In other words, he breathed out the heavens. And he told the water, you go hang out right over there. He just spoke it and it happened. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In other words, this one God, he can do whatever he wants. That's the God that Paul is reminding Timothy about. Psalm 135, 5-7, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He it is who makes the lightnings for the rain. And He brings the wind from His storehouses. We don't think about that so often, do we? Do we look at the clouds? Maybe every now and again. He brought those. He holds those. He tells them where to go. Psalm 147, verse 4. He determines the number of stars, and He gives to all of them their names. I mean, bazillion? Is that a word? Is that a number? Bazillion. Boom! Throw them out there. He spoke them into existence. And your name right there, your name's Chuck. He gave them all their name. That's the God we worship. That's a big God. Isaiah 37, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heavens and the earth. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. And bam! Just happened. It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't, how am I going to pull this off? How are we going to, how are we going to get these chairs in straight lines and the, 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 the rotation and that? Thing? He just spoke it and it ha- he stretched out his arms and bam! It happened. That's a great God. That's an incredible God. Psalm 8:3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Wow. This sometimes in our house, I can go down a tangent sometimes of maybe too much PowerPoint presentation and too much detail. But when we start talking about the Creator God and we start talking about the heavens and the stars, listen, do you realize this? That the furthest star, actually the furthest galaxy of stars that we have found we being humanity has found, is 13.2 billion light years away. Okay? 13.2 billion light years away. You're not impressed. It's one light year is 5.8 
trillion miles. 13 point billion light years times 5.8 trillion. That's 76 to the 22nd power. That doesn't have a name. And he spoke it. Chuck, you go way out there. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. The sun is 93 million miles away and the moon is about 230,000. We could drive that. God (laughs) speaks it into existence. And then at the end of that last verse that I read, Psalm 8, verse 3, it said, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, it says, And what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, you do this great vastness. You speak the heavens into existence. You speak the planets into existence. And then in, in that, you care about us? Seriously, God? Seriously, Psalm 139 said, For he formed my inward parts. He knit them together in my mother's womb. We're not going too deep on this. He took one cell and he took another cell that joined together and humanity in his image is formed. It says in Matthew that the God that we worship It gives the lilies their color and their splendor. But that's how intimate this God is who put Chuck way out there, a long way away. Now, here's the deal. If I don't believe that, that there's one great God that is that magnificent, that awesome, deserves our worship, here's my alternative. That all this happened by chance. I don't have that kind of faith. There is one God, Paul says to Timothy. And then he goes on. He says there's one mediator between God and men. A mediator, most of you know, probably, is one that comes in in the middle of a dispute to settle things. And so why is a mediator needed? A mediator is needed any times, as we say in the South, that a relationship has gone sideways, that it's out of sorts, that it's fractured. The fact that a mediator is needed is evidence that the relationship between God and man has gone bad. It is. How to go bad. How to get fractured. Genesis 3 is how it happened. Genesis 3, God comes into Eve and He says, Eve, do you want to be like God? She and Adam both say yes. She and Adam both say yes. They both disobey God. It's the first point in history where, where, where mankind hears the message that I can be like God that I can be the center of the universe, that this thing revolves around me. And so in Genesis 3, when, Adam, when the serpent comes to Eve and says, hey, did he really say what you thought he said? He didn't say that. He said, listen, if you eat of this apple, you will be like God. Ah, 
Eve takes a bite, hands it to Adam. From Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible is all of the evidence of our fractured humanity. We have two good chapters in the Bible. From then on, it went bad. And so this is the beginning. At that point, the brokenness of humanity begins. And how can you not look? How can we not look at the world around us and know, I mean, deep inside our soul, we know that this thing is fractured. It is not really working or, or, or going as it was designed to be. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to Books in Million. Go to the, self, uh, the, the self-help section. It is one of the biggest sections in there because we are trying as a culture, as a, as a, as a species to fix ourselves, especially in America today. And so that's why that section of books is one of the... Do this and you will be happy. Do this and you will have the answers. Do this because we are fractured. And when the, when the fractured humanity took place, the relationship between man and God took place, I mean, we see it. We, how can we not look around us and see the, the greed and lust and hate and sickness and not know that it's fractured? And the implications of mankind's decision and actions in Gen- Gen- Genesis 3 are staggering. It was the beginning of the action of stealing glory from God. Men, let me tell you one thing again. I only have experience being a man. But when God showed up in Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that He called out was, Adam, where are you? Men, we have an incredible responsibility to guide and shepherd and protect not only our families, but our brothers and sisters around us. God does not care if you can shoot scratch golf. He does not care how many points are on your wall. He does not care how many miles you can run. He cares, men, that you're reflecting Him to your wife and children and the people around you. All of our hobbies... All of our habits can be okay. But we do, when we do them for our own self-glorification, they're not okay. And so in all things, we need to exalt God. And we men need to answer the call of Adam, Where are you? I'm here, God, and I'm ready. So men, we have a huge responsibility. Again, Genesis 3 was the beginning of, act, of the action of stealing glory from God. Romans 5, 2 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin. This makes us sinners by nature and choice. We understand the nature part. I don't have to explain hard, to, hard uh, uh, get very deep with you about our, our lineage of Adam and why we are sinful, but we are also sinful by the choices that we make every day, and this is where it becomes hard. We say this every week in here. This is where it becomes hard for most of us, including myself. Because for the most part, we are morally upright. We tell the truth 80 to 90% of the time. We only tell lies when we know it's for a good reason. But thinking that you are morally upright, thinking that you are deserving anything other than the wrath and punishment of God is just evidence of our own pride and it was the cause of the original sin in Genesis chapter 3. 
And so that's where we struggle. Most of us have not committed any of the majors that we think about. Adultery, uh, murder, um, stealing. We've got those down for the most part. We met with a guy last week as we were doing some of these, um, these uh, uh, membership interviews. And it was so neat. I wrote it down that, that the perception that he had of himself, which he knows was not the truth, that he was just one step away from completing his sanctification. And that's kind of the perception we have as upper middle class Americans that, yeah, we, we pretty, pretty, we're pretty good. But you and I are hostile towards God. And it's hard for us to comprehend because you and I, what we do is we lay our lives down. We lay our lives down against our neighbors, coworkers, and family members, which we will all do this week. And we will say, I must be okay because my family is jacked up. Not mine, yours. Mom, <clears throat> I'm reminded of my wretchedness so often because I realized how much I'm seeking the approval of, man, approval of man instead of giving glory and honor to God. My heart is an idol factory, and the things that I, that I idolize are myself, good morals, social networking, others, prestige, accomplishments, abilities, institutions. And when I think that I am normal and everyone else is not, that is sin. And that is the category I fall into most often. Paul makes this point in Galatians 1.10. He says, You cannot please man and serve Christ. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because you can't do both. You can't be a man pleaser and serve Christ. Jesus Himself reminds us that we cannot go after the things of this world and go after God. In Matthew 6, 24, He says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will be hate the one and be devoted to the other, or he will, he will love the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Another way of saying, you can't serve God in anything else. You can't. You can't. You can't serve God in your stuff and your reputation and your success and your desire to please man. Those two things are not compatible. Does that, does that mean that you do not go at work hard at your job? And does it mean that you do not try to succeed in the business world? Does that mean that you don't try to uh, uh, even keep your yard nice? Does it mean? No, it means that in all things that you do, you do it for the glory of God, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, whether you're eating or drinking, whether you're running marathons, whether you're out hunting, whether you're at work at the bank or Aflac or you're, where, or you're home, wherever you are, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. And when you don't, when you do it for your own glory, which is what we are so guilty of, you're stealing glory from God. That's where I get convicted. Psalm 20, 127, verse 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays, stays awake in vain. So unless, unless God is involved in all things, it's all vanity. It's all for our own glory unless the, the Lord is in it, unless we're doing it for His glory. Crosspoint I, rental counts, is continually, continually serving my reputation and my desire to please man. That is a struggle for me. I remember it was probably four years ago, Brad and I were driving somewhere, and I just asked him, I said, well, man, what's your biggest one? What do you struggle with the most? Lust, temptation, cheating on your taxes. I mean, which is your biggest? 
He said, man-pleasing. I said, yeah, that's it, man-pleasing. I'll tell you, about three weeks ago, I was in a doctor's office. This is, I do not work for the church. I have a job in sales, and I was in a doctor's office. And just to show you how shameful I am in my man-pleasing desires, and there was this guy, I was in Tifton, Georgia, and there was this, this guy who didn't work for the office, but you could tell he was a regular there, and everyone knew him, and you could tell he was training for a marathon because he walked in and they said, well, how, how's it going? How, how's the training going? Man, I can't believe you, you're running a marathon. He said, yeah, I've got to do a long run of 14 miles this weekend. And, and not only am I doing a marathon on the day before the marathon, I'm going to do a half marathon. This is what they do down in Disney. They call it the goofy because you really got to be goofy to do both. You do a half marathon on one day and a marathon on the next. And you know what my thought was? I'm just standing there because that's what I do. I'm just standing there. And I, I thought to myself, well, that's cute. <laughs> that's really cute. He's going to run a marathon and a half marathon. Do you know what I do? I mean, I don't want to tell him. I just wanted to kind of get out. I, I don't mess with marathon. I go bigger than that. I just wanted that to get out because that's my, my man. Play. I want you to be impressed with me. Let me just kind of let it out. I don't, I'm not going to tell you, but will you tell them? And that's kind of how we are in man-pleasing. You know, we say we're so humble, but we don't want to hear. Don't come praise me, or, or I'm not going to tell you how great I am. But, but um, if someone else could tell someone, and it gets back to me, that they said how great I am, that's just kind of the world in our culture in America that we're called. We're just man-pleasers, and we, we love, oh, don't say that about me. Come on, come on, come on, come on, keep it coming, keep it coming, come on. Oh, thanks. No, 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 feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. And that is just my man-pleasing sin. That's where I am. So the bottom line, when it comes to sin, when it comes to the fractured state of the world, no one is righteous. None of us. Folks, we've got to be there. We have to get there in that. We have to recognize our own sickness, our own illness, and what sin has done to us, even though we think we can go through this life with man-pleasing and not many, there, there, there won't be, be, be much injury. Okay, but the message of the Bible is that, listen, when you make yourself more than God, that is sin and stealing glory from God. And hopefully we can realize that humanity in the world is broken and that nothing we will do will fix it or bring it back to Eden. Nothing is going to bring us back to Eden despite all of our technology, despite all of our enterprise, despite our government, despite our political parties, despite or any other humanitarian effort. We're not... Getting back to Eden. If you vote Republican, you are a sinner. If you vote Democrat, you are a sinner. If you vote Independent, you are a sinner and in need of a Savior. We cannot legislate Christianity. Because when that happens, that goes very bad. It really does. And so if we're in love with Jesus, it should affect how we do things. Not that we get so on board with our political party, but it affects the way we treat our wife and our children and our neighbors and those who need help and those who are hungry. It's an outflow of our life, not because we love Jesus. We vote that way and do something. The gospel should hit us and penetrate us and change everything. We're not going to get back to Eden. But while we're here on earth, our life should be a response and outpouring of the love of Christ because of what He did for us. Because the root of our being is sin. And then it goes on in this verse and it says, For there is one God and one mediator 
between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. This is where this story, this verse gets really crazy. It says there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So you have this dispute. You have this dispute between two parties. It would be like if Danielle and I were in a major dispute. Major dispute, so much so that we had to bring in a mediator. I mean, we're talking, we're talking uh, baseball union versus owners. You know, they're both back in their corner. They're not coming out. We've got to go to mediation. And so Danielle and I are in a dispute so much so, I mean, we're holding, we're holding ground. We're not moving. We're not coming together. And I said, I tell you what I think we need to do. We need to bring in a mediator. She goes, darn right, we need to bring in a mediator. I said, I've got an idea. I'll be the mediator. Her response would be, well, that's not fair. Because if I come in as the mediator, whose side am I going to take? Mine. And that's what happens here. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, comes in to mediate between God and man. And he does something totally crazy. See, when that mediation took place, if we were there and we were standing in that same room, it should have been, oh my goodness. Look who's coming as the mediator. This is going to go bad. The same way if between Danielle and I, and I came in as the mediator, Danielle's in her mind would probably go, this is going to go bad. So Jesus looks at us and says, Rental, you're guilty. But I'll take your guilt upon myself. He says, You're guilty, but I'm going to pay. Rental, you're guilty, but I'm going to pay. What? Yeah, you're guilty. But I'm going to pay. See, this isn't fair. In fact, Christianity is not a fair system. The reason it's not a fair system is because the innocent is punished and the guilty go free. Our, our American minds cannot compute with that because we as Americans want fairness and justice. That is what we... Someone wrongs me, I want justice. I want fairness. If you have children, how many times have you ever heard that? That's not fair. If you're in corporate America, how many times have you said it? That's not fair. We don't want fair. We really don't. The grace of God is not fair. According to our worldly standards, the mercy of God is not fair because Jesus Christ took the punishment that was mine and He took it upon Himself. That's why the person and work of Jesus to drop us to our knees in gratitude. That's why when we come in here and worship God, if we can, if we can even possibly get the distractions and, and the things of our mind cleared out, it should just be, oh, you've got to be kidding. How can I not lift my hand? How can I not go to my knees? 
How can I not have a lump in my throat when I think of the grace and the mercy of God and what He did for me, the punishment that He took, that He took my guilt, an innocent man. See, we even have trouble doing that. We have trouble clearing our hearts, trouble clearing our minds to even see that and think about that. But there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who paid our ransom. We're going to wrap this thing up. He paid our ransom. A ransom is the sum that's demanded for the release of a captive. We have, as humanity, have been taken captive by our sin. Jesus has come in and said, listen, you're guilty, but I'm going to pay. You're guilty, but I'm going to pay. The payment for the release of sin established by, by God is a pure and unblemished blood sacrifice. We see this as a sin offering in Levit- Leviticus chapter 4. It says this, They shall offer a bull. Then it goes on and later it says, And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Also in chapter 4 it says, They shall offer a goat, so the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. They shall offer a lamb, and the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. That was the Old Testament covenant. That was the Old Testament law, that if there is a sin, that the way you atone for sin is through the blood sacrifice. But this time in the New Covenant, the covenant of grace, instead of a continual blood sacrifice of an unblemished animal, God lays it upon Himself. Isaiah prophesied about this very thing in Isaiah 53, 5-6. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord had laid on Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. It goes on in verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Jesus said in Matthew, He said, My purpose for coming here was not to be served, to be served, but to serve and to give My life as a ransom for many. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. We don't, go to a great high, we don't go to a high priest for our atonement, nor do we have to pay the debt. Our sin has been atoned for by a great high priest. Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 26, verse 26 into chapter 8. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Listen to this. This is Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness, just regular guys, men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son, Jesus, who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the covenant of animal sacrifices, if that had worked, there would have been no occasion for the second. See, we have the perfect high priest a high priest that comes in and says, listen, I'm going to take your guilt and I'm going to let it get laid on me, the innocent. See, it should have been me and you laid on the cross. It's our sin. It should have been Jesus with the hammer and the nail. But He tells us, get up. Let me lay down there. Let me lay down there, Reynolds. And he lays down. And then we're holding the hammer and the nail. Our sin. You hear that song? It was my sin that put him there. It was Reynolds' sin that put him there. He said, Nail it, Reynolds. Nail it. Nail it, Reynolds. This is why I came. Nail it. The gospel is amazing. The exchange that took place is amazing. That's only half the story. The other half of the story is that not only did He take our sin from us, but at that exchange, when He laid His life down, He gave us His righteousness. We see in the book of Peter, where Peter writes that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The exchange, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. Wow! We can't take that lightly. That has to, that has to affect our worldview. It has to affect the way we see everything. Why does the gospel need to shape our worldview? Because we need to understand that we bring nothing to the table. Absolutely nothing. Our morality gets us nothing before a just and right, righteous God. Our good works gain us nothing before a just and righteous God. Our religious acts gain us nothing before a just and righteous God. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift from God. Not by anything that you do. Not by any of your works. So that no one can boast. 
when we understand the gospel in that way, that takes us to our knees in gratitude and awe and worship. Our morals, our character, the works that we do are an outpouring of response to the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Unbeliever, you must repent and believe. You must repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Justice will be had on the day of judgment. Either He will look at you and He will look at me and He will say, it's already paid. Yours is already paid. Or you will pay. Somebody's going to pay. That's why you must repent and believe. Payment has been paid for those who believe. Payment is still to come for those who do not. I'm going to end with this. And believer, you should be confident in this. Hebrews chapter 9, and we rejoice in this. Verse 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. God, we come before you today recognizing that there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. And that's Jesus. And we understand, God, that You are the one who paid the ransom that should have been paid by us And You are the One who willingly laid Your life down You are the One who has given us grace and mercy to those who believe. So God, can we see that more clearly today? Could You help that truth shape our worldview so that it would affect everything. It would, it would affect the way that we treat our family this week as we go home. It would affect the grace that we show our neighbors and our children and our spouses, Lord. Because building our salvation on morality does not work and it becomes exhausting. And so I pray, God, that that the Gospel 
that this truth would just flow out of us so that it changes everything. And so God, I pray for the person in here, here who may not know You or may not even be buying into the fact that they're a sinner. Would You illuminate that? Would You show that to them, God? The Scriptures are full of it. God, You took Paul and You turned him 180 degrees in the other direction. And You've taken lives in this very room and You've turned them 180 degrees in the other direction. Lord, the Scriptures tell us that You can change the leper's spots. So I know if you can do that, you can soften the heart that is hard. And you can make the scales drop. And so I pray that that would happen today, Lord. That they could see and appreciate you and your work. Help us understand that you came into this world to save sinners so that the sinner would see that and understand that and exalt you and glorify you in all things. Oh, and for the believer in here, Lord, would you just remind us again and again and again and again of your work. What you saved us from and what you saved us to so that we might exalt you above the heavens and give you glory in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name.